session number one for the Frontline Leadership Conference is heeding the call. Heeding the call. And as you can see up there, I've put up the Cyrus Challenge. Heeding the call. You know, one of the things that is very interesting these days is that, uh, well, it's nothing new. It's nothing to do with these days, actually. Let me correct myself even as I begin. It's always been like that. You will always find that through the ages, there are people who are non-Christians who will challenge Christians to rise up and do what God expects them to do. In every generation, you are always going to find someone who will, will come up to you and say, but you're a child of God, you need to do this. And many times, we actually resent that because, you know, we turn around and we say, well, you know, who are they to say that to me? I'm a, I'm a Christian. Who, who, are, who, who are they to say I should rise up to my Christian responsibility and do what God expects me to do? Actually, if it were a non-believer standing right here and sharing the things that I'm going to share this morning, we would have a responsibility to listen. If what they are saying is right, if what they are saying is truth, we have a responsibility to listen. Amen. There is a man who is an expert in mass communication. His name is Marshall McLuhan. And he came up with this concept uh, and, and he's taught a lot uh, if, you, if you study for a mass communication degree or a journalism degree you will come across this Canadian Marshall McLuhan he came up with this concept that the medium is the message uh, and uh, so the, the medium actually becomes the message but I beg to differ when it comes to the things of God the message is the message Amen if someone is telling truth they are telling truth so it doesn't matter who challenges you to rise to the challenge of leadership. You have a responsibility to respond the way God wants you to respond. It doesn't matter what the person looks like. It doesn't matter that they have a mint heel accent like I do. It really doesn't matter. As long as they are telling you the truth, your responsibility is to receive truth and respond to it appropriately. So we come across, you know, there's this character that we encounter in the Bible. His name is King Cyrus of Persia. And uh, if you go to Ezra uh, chapter 1, you, you, you find this man, you know, right at the beginning of that chapter, it says that uh, Ezra, uh, uh, Cyrus, uh, issued a proclamation. Because the Lord had stirred it up in him, and he said, well... Uh, you know, I, I need to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem, in Judah. But this man was, it's, it's amazing, isn't it, that the Lord would actually give a burden for that to Cyrus when the children of Israel were in captivity. It's amazing. How can that be? Why didn't God speak to one of the children of Israel? But he speaks to Cyrus and he says that I want you to rebuild well, not him personally, but to facilitate the rebuilding of the temple. So he issues a proclamation. Remember, this is the time when the children of Israel are in captivity in Persia. And uh, <laughs> the proclamation is, uh, you know, he, he says to the children of Israel, basically, what is written there. Who is there among you of all his people? His God be with him and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and build the house of the Lord. He is the God. Which is in Jerusalem. And he doesn't stop, stop there. He says, who is going to go? Then he adds, if you are not going to go, I want you to use your resources to assist those who are going to rebuild the temple. It says two things. First of all, who is there among you? Who is there among you? And, you know, I want you to notice something about, about this. This is a non-specific call. He does not point to anyone and say, Dean, I want you to go back to Jerusalem and build the temple. He doesn't say that. He doesn't name anyone by name. What he says is, who is there among you 
of God's people who will do this. So you notice two things there. It's non-specific and it's from a very unlikely source. He says, who is going to volunteer? And then the next thing that you notice about the Cyrus challenge is that it's an appeal to the conscience of the exiles. There's something that happens to you when you have been in captivity for a long time and you've gotten used to it and you've begun to settle and things are going well. Cyrus couldn't possibly have said to those that were not going, use your resources to help if they didn't have resources. In fact, he actually mentions what resources they should contribute. He says, give your gold and your silver and your beasts. So these people who were in captivity had started living well. They were very settled in captivity. And Cyrus issues this challenge and says, you guys, there is a cause right here to which you need to respond. Why? Because you are children of God. Who is there among you? And I believe that the Cyrus challenge is going out to us these days. And the challenge is who among God's people is going to rise up and respond to the challenge of kingdom leadership. If you are not going to go, use your resources. Amen. Amen. If you are not going to do it yourself, you are not going to volunteer, then use your resources. And you know, this is actually a, a, a trick here. Because you know it hurts to use your money. So, you know, when, uh, the, the moment you realize, well, you know, I, if I'm not going, I have to use my, my money, you might end up going. Because it has to use your money. <laughs> you know? So the Cyrus challenge is a non-specific challenge from a very unlikely source. And it's appealing to the conscience of the exiles who are very comfortable and saying to them, look here, I know that you are comfortable, things are going well for you, but right now, there is something that needs to be done that's more important than your comfort. Can you rise up and respond to this challenge of leadership? The Cyrus challenge. I want us to note that. It's a challenge that's going out right now. It doesn't matter who says to you as a believer, look here, I think the church or the Christian ought to be rising up and doing something. What you need to respond to is the truth of what they are saying. You know, <laughs> when Mel Gibson made his film, well, you know, if you, if you really watch that movie and, and you really go into it, you, you'll find some, some, some theological problems here and there. But you'll find some theological problems with anything that anyone says. I mean, there is no one. If you really look hard enough, even some of the stuff that I'm going to be talking about here today, you, you, may, you, know, you, you may find some theological problems with it. I don't know anyone who can stand up and speak and they are theologically perfect and they manage to cross all the T's and dot all the I's for everyone. I don't know anyone like that. We are all fallible. We try. But we're all fallible. Is that right? So we can always find something wrong with something that somebody does if we look hard enough. But this is what the Passion of the Christ did to me. The passion of the Christ to me was a Cyrus challenge. It was someone who, I don't know what the state of his faith is, I, I don't want to be judgmental about him, was someone in Hollywood saying, if you guys are not going to do it, I will do it. Do something. Do something. The, the picture is not right. Do something. Use your resources and use his own money. And you think that it wasn't hard. You think that, you know, he wants people to be saying the things that they're saying about him. You know, Hollywood people. No, no, I don't think he does. But this is someone actually issuing a Cyrus challenge to the church, to the believer, to those who have resources and saying, look here, recognize your responsibility as a kingdom person and do something. There was something else about the Cyrus challenge that was very significant. What Cyrus wanted was for these exiles 
to actually recognize that they had a prophetic or historic purpose to respond at this particular time. Because actually what had happened was Jeremiah had said that this was going to happen. So if you read verse 1 of Ezra chapter 1, it actually says that the reason why Cyrus issued this challenge was so that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. So even people who you normally wouldn't consider to be Christians or Christian leaders are going to rise up and do certain things that are being done for the fulfillment of a prophetic purpose. Amen. See, unfortunately, children of God, we really don't pay too much attention to what has been said prophetically uh, so that we can try to tie it in with our responsibilities or the need for us to respond to the call of leadership. We don't. You know? We really don't. And, 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 and it's amazing. There is so much... Well, let me not go ahead of myself. We'll get to that in a minute. So, that was the Cyrus challenge. And what was the response? Ezra chapter 1 verse 5 shows us the response. The response... Then rose up the chief of the five fathers of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and the Levites with all them whose spirit God had raised to go up to build the house of the Lord which is in Jerusalem. And, and in this scripture, this particular verse can even provide some people with an excuse as well, you know, uh, the ones that rose were those that the Lord, uh, you know, the Lord had raised their spirit. So, well, the Lord has not raised my spirit. Some of us wouldn't know when the Lord is raising our spirit. You know, we, you know, we wouldn't recognize it if, if the Lord is actually raising our spirits. We have actually lost the ability to know what God is saying. When God is saying, stand up, we remain seated. When He's saying, sit down, we stand up. When He says, walk, we stop. When He says, stop, we walk. We are so used to doing what we want and hearing what we want. We are so, you know, obsessed with what we need to do ourselves, not necessarily what God expects of us, so that our responses are always inappropriate. So, instead of looking at that scripture and finding an excuse, that, ah, no, 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 I, you know, God didn't stir up my spirit. The question is, when God spoke, did you hear? When he said, do something, did you hear? So the response was for these people, to rise up and do something, even though the call had been non-specific. Okay. The Goliath challenge is another interesting one. First Samuel chapter 17, 8 to 9. The giant Goliath, who is in the army, we know the story, who is in the army of the Philistines. And they are arrayed against each, you know, the Philistines are on this side in the valley of Elah, and the children of Israel are on the other side. And they're facing each other, you know, this 40-day face-off. And for 40 days, this giant comes out and says, Choose you a man for you, and let him come down, come down to me. If he be able to fight with me and to kill me, then will we be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then shall ye be our servants. And we know what happened when this challenge was issued. All the children of Israel ran and hid. What did Goliath say? Goliath said, choose you. Do you know what is really pathetic sometimes among us as believers? Is that sometimes we don't even have enough confidence in the other brethren that are around us for us to actually say, this I know this person can deal with this problem. I know he can do it. And, and part of the problem is, actually, we can't do that because we don't want anyone pointing to us and saying, I, I think you can do this. So there is an agreement, uh, usually, in, in, in the church of God, that when there is a need, you know, you can't really tell anyone to do anything. You can't push somebody to respond to the challenge of Goliath. You can't. We are all free agents in the church. Uh, you know, we, we do what we want. You know, please leave me alone. Don't expect me to inconvenience. Well, you know, if you're, why are you saying that to me? Why don't you do it yourself? Well, what if I think that God has prepared you in a unique way to meet this challenge? You realize that many times in the, in the scriptures, 
People who were busy minding their own business had a visitation by a prophet of God. For example, a young man called Elisha in the book of Kings. He is busy doing what he is supposed to be doing to fend for his family. He is out in the fields, plowing the fields. And the prophet comes. I mean, he didn't ask for it. And the prophet comes, removes his mantle, and throws it at him and says, you know, indicating that this was the man who was supposed to succeed him in the prophetic office. And what did Elisha do? Immediately he left what he was doing and followed Elijah. That is what God does when he calls us. He will use other people to show us what our responsibilities are. We've got to get used to that again in the church. People actually walking up to you and saying, well, I mean, I'm not talking about someone just causing confusion. But I'm talking about those people that, you know, we trust. Who we know God speaks to. Coming to you and saying to you, you know, God is saying you should do this. And you receive it and you respond to the challenge of leadership. So remember what we said at the beginning. It doesn't matter who said it. It was Goliath. Okay. But seriously, Israel was supposed to say, (laughs) Goliath, we have so many people who can respond to that challenge. Here is the first one, Byron Wicker. Take that. You know? And, 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 and actually, Byron doesn't even have to do it. Because we know definitely that he can do it. This other person can do it too. We, we have so many choices. You know? Right here is Paula Ulrich. You know, Israel was supposed to say that. Because they were Israel, they were the people of God. But nobody responded. Except a young man called David. It's very interesting when you look at the at what David had to go through in order for him to be able to engage Goliath, to respond to this challenge. There were so many obstacles on the way. Now, let's look at this young man called David, who he was. If if the chronology of the Bible is right in telling this story, and I suspect it's right, I've been reading it and rereading it. You know, 1 Samuel 16, 17, and you, you know, you, 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 you look at it and you, because I really wanted to make sure that what I was, what the Lord was revealing to me was really right. It would seem to me that when David showed up in the valley of Elah, he had already been anointed king, according to the chronology of that story. He had already been anointed king. So, and, and it would also seem that he had already slain the lion and the bear at this stage. And uh, so he comes in there to a situation where Goliath is challenging the children of Israel. In fact, after he had been anointed king, there was a time when you know, Saul was looking for someone to pacify his demons. and invited, you know, So David was the one selected to play the harp for him. And so he's in the house of, 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 of the king, in the palace, when war breaks out. And then we read that when war broke out, the three brothers of David followed Saul to the war. And David returned home to look after his father's ship. Because he was the youngest. This is what was expected of him. The three brothers had never slain a lion or a bear with their bare hands. But they were older. Everyone say they were older. Everyone say they were older. Everyone say David was the youngest. So the Goliath challenge is issued. The three oldest brothers who have never slain a lion and a bear with their bare hands and about whom God has really not spoken a tremendous word saying this is going to be the next king of Israel or anything. No, these are just the older brothers of David. When the Goliath challenge is issued, they don't respond. David comes onto the situation and look at why he is coming. He is coming to bring food to his brothers. And then he starts asking, he says, what is going on here? What shall be done for this pers- the person who goes against this giant? And his oldest brother Eliab hears this. And he is very angry with David. And what does he say to David? He says, why are you asking? I know your naughtiness. You have just come here to observe the war. Why are, who did you leave the ship with? And David responds and he says, what have I done now? Is there not a cause? Alright? What have I done? Why are you so excited? 
Why do you want to drag me into this useless discussion? Uh, you, you know, obviously there was some, there was some sibling rivalry here, and there were a lot of insecurities here. But wh- why, do, why should we go there? I mean, I have come here, and all I am asking is, what shall be done for the man who goes, who responds to this challenge? What have I done? Why are you so worried about it? So, so David had to actually confront his brother. But I want you to see the confrontation. The confrontation was just two lines. David did not froth at the mouth. David did not say, you know, let's convene a council of the elders to confront Eliab. Why is Eliab saying this to me? Why is he humiliating me in front of people? And so on and so forth. He did not respond to insecurity with insecurity. He did And one of the biggest problems that we have responding to the call of leadership is that whenever there is an obstacle, we respond to that obstacle. You know, if it's insecurity of a sibling, insecurity of other people in the church, we respond to insecurity with insecurity. And we never respond to the call of leadership. So, as far as David was concerned, it was very clear what was needed to be done here. There is a cause here. There is something more important than a squabble between me and you. Amen. Is there not a cause? So the first thing that David had to fight was the insecurity of his brother. And many times in the church of Jesus Christ we have to fight against the insecurity of the person who sits next to us in the pew. The insecurity of the leadership. The insecurity of the lay people. I've had a all people saying all kinds of things about, you know, it's the lay people who are going to do this. And some people say, no, 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 no. You know, it's the ordained people who are going to do this. But some of those arguments are so unnecessary. Just do what God has called you to do. Amen. You are, we are going to be arguing until Jesus comes about who is going to do what. The important thing is for us all, and, and, and even if one section of the church starts arguing about that and saying, well, you know, it's the role of the laity to do this. And another section says, look, if, if you are secure, you say, oh, okay, I understand what you are saying, brother, but let's do what we're supposed to be doing. And you do it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, you know, uh, the only person who is supposed to lead praise and worship is somebody who is like this and like this and like this. And you know you don't have those qualities yourself. But God has given, you, you need somebody to lead praise and worship. You know, it's it's amazing if you are a pastor or a leader in any Christian organization, it's amazing just how much damage insecurity does to the lives of people, to the advance of the kingdom. It's amazing. So don't respond to insecurity with insecurity. That's the first thing that he had to uh, uh, face and overcome. His patronizing brother Eliab. Then the next thing was the skepticism of the king and the people. You know, when he went to King Saul and he says, you know, I'm going to go against this guy. King Saul says, look, look, you are a young man. He has been a man of war from his youth. There is no way that you can respond to this. It's amazing, isn't it? The ones who are not responding will try to discourage those who want to to respond. So David says to King Saul, and to the people, let no man's heart fail because of Goliath. Thy servant will go and fight with the Philistine. And remember who has issued this challenge is Goliath himself, right? And David shows up and he is going against Goliath. And Goliath starts saying, well, you know, why are you sending this little pickaninny to me? Why are you sending this, this little boy? Why? Why? Why are you insulting me like this? Listen, the enemy is good with words. He is excellent with words. Because, you know what? The enemy can see your faith. He can. He knows. You know, I remember one time, uh, I told this story before, I, I, I suspect perhaps here or at, at the Charlotte International Church. We were going to, um, there was a woman who, was, who, who had some very serious demonic problems. And what was happening to her was she was a nurse. And then one day, uh, she started just being eaten up from inside. They would take pictures of her internal organs, and there would be parts of the internal organs missing. 
something was eating her from inside. And, and, and you know, it, it baffled the, 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 the doctors in Zimbabwe. What's going on with this, with this person? So they, uh, you know, they, they sent her home. She couldn't work. And she was vomiting blood, you know. And it, it was really a terrible case. So if, one day I was at a prayer meeting with some friends. And we happened, this was, very, I, I think, I was, not, I was not in full-time ministry yet. I was about to go into full-time ministry. And I was not really uh, experienced in, 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 in you know, praying deliverance and things like that. So we happened to be at a, at a place, my wife and I and some other people, where there was a young lady who was possessed. And uh, everybody was trying to pray for this young, young lady to be delivered. And uh, uh, obviously they knew I didn't have much experience you know, in deliverance, so I was not an ordained minister, so, you, you know, you, you, I was kind of sidelined, you know, and they were praying, praying up a storm, and nothing happened. And then the Lord told me to go and pray for this young lady. So I went and I prayed for this young lady, and she was delivered instantly. The relative of this nurse was at the prayer meeting, so he says, please come and pray for my sister. Please. He said, what's going on? So he tell, tells me this story. So me and a friend of mine, we decided, well, you know, let's go and pray for this, for this lady. So we drive to this lady's house. We get to this lady's house. As we are approaching, as we are in the driveway, the demon which was in it says, well, you know something? You guys have all been praying. But the people who are going to cast me out have arrived. They are pulling in in the driveway. So we pulled in in the driveway, and, and then we got out of the car. And as we were coming out of the car, the brother was coming out. And we were like, how did you know we were here? He said, the demon told us you were here. There are things that the enemy knows about you that you yourself are not confident in. The enemy knows. That's the reason why sometimes you start praying for someone. And the moment you start you know, the, the, the devil starts going, <laughs> why is it that the enemy does that to some people and doesn't do that to others? There was a, a lady at one of the prayer meetings. She had been doing something the previous night which she wasn't supposed to be doing. And she started praying to cast out this demon. And the demon says, look here. Stop trying to do that. I know where you were last night. And she stopped dead in her tracks. Because she knew what she was doing last night. So Goliath looks at David. And Goliath knows what's inside this young man. And starts saying, why is it that you are insulting me like this? Why are you saying, am I a dog? What, what is this? And David says to Goliath, this is what David says. This day will the Lord deliver thee into mine hand. And I will smite thee. And take thine head from thee. I will do it. I will kill you today. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone. And smote the Philistine. See the things that David had to go through. He had to go through the insecurities of his brother. The skepticism of the king and the people. And the attempts by the enemy to keep him from responding. So he went through all those three barriers. Why? Because there was a cause. Because there was something that needed to be done. And he knew in his heart of heart, his testimony aside that he had killed the lion and the bear, he knew it in his heart of heart that it was God's desire that at this particular moment, Goliath be defeated. He knew it. He knew that all of heaven was on his side. There is no way that he could fail. No way. But additionally, he had a testimony that showed that God does come through in support of those that respond to the call of the cause. I want to ask you this question today. Is there not a cause that you can respond to because you are a child of God? And because it is right for you to respond to it. It doesn't matter what people are saying about you. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how they make you feel. This is not about how people make you feel. This is about what is needed to be done for the kingdom. Is there not a cause? It doesn't matter that people make you feel like less of a human being, you know. There are some people who are so preoccupied, you know, they may, they may be blue, you know. And then the brown people start making them feel as if they're second class citizens. And this becomes a, pre a lifetime preoccupation. 
One of the things that I have always said, and some people have found it very uncomfortable uh, you know, when, when I say things like this, but I'm going to say it. One of the things that I, I, God told me, never tolerate is someone who makes you feel less of a human being because of the color of your skin. We can be great friends, but if you look at me as someone who is less of a human being than you, we part company. Amen. We, we can be the fastest of friends like this. And, 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 th- and that's important. Because if you allow that thing to affect you, when God tells you as a child of God to respond to the Cyrus challenge, you can't. To respond to the Goliath challenge, you can't. Because you are so preoccupied with that whole issue and you, that becomes the obsession of your life. Well, why are they doing this to me? People will do that. People are evil. They'll do that. And it shouldn't be your preoccupation. What you should preoccupy yourself with is, listen, I am a child of God. God loved me so much in my blue skin and gave his only begotten son, uh, you know, and I believed and I am saved and I tell you I am his son. There's a spirit in me that cries, Abba, Father, in my blueness. And when I die, I'm going to go to heaven. So I don't care about what people are doing. There is a challenge here that I need to respond to. Amen. The Isaiah challenge. We also see that in the Isaiah challenge, well, this one was a, <coughs> an interesting one. Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah, in the year that King Uzziah died, Isaiah sees the Lord in all his glory. And um, he's really overwhelmed by this experience. It's an incredible experience. He's never seen anything like this. But what is revealed to him is his wretchedness. And he says, my goodness, I am undone. I live among a people of unclean lips and, and I have seen the Lord. I have seen the Lord. I'm finished. You know, when the Lord reveals himself to you, you can be totally immobilized. By the experience. So God looks at Isaiah and realizes Isaiah is totally overwhelmed here. Totally. And he is totally immobilized. He doesn't know what to do. I'm finished. And, and, and there are some people who, you know, you come to church on a Sunday morning and the word is so powerful, the worship is so powerful, and you are so convicted and everything. And, you know, you can't function even after this experience because you are so convicted. Oh, I'm so unworthy. You know, even, you know, two weeks after the message was pre- preached, which convicted you. I'm so unworthy. I can't do, you know, can God really accept me as a servant? After all I have done. Listen, even if you have done nothing, pay attention to this. Even if you have done nothing bad, when the glory of the Lord is really revealed to you, to you, you will see your wretchedness. Because there is nothing like the light of God's glory. Even if you have never cast. Remember what the Bible says. All have sinned and fallen short of the, of the glory of God. Including those who have not sinned. In the sense of actually I have done something. Just by being born. We have all sinned. I mean so when, when the Lord's glory is revealed. Even if you haven't done something. Thank you. You are going to see your wretchedness. So God sees this and realizes, oh, oh, Isaiah here is totally immobilized. So what I need to do is to send an angel, touch his lips, so that, uh, you know, he, he can feel a little bit better about himself. So the Lord does that. And then the scripture says, after he had seen all this wretchedness, his wretchedness and all these angels crying, holy, holy, and, and all that, and he's in awe. There's something else that he heard. And that something else, which starts with the word also, was the essence of this experience. This is what God wanted Isaiah to hear. So that whole experience where he saw his wretchedness and then he is cleansed and so on, was really to prepare him to hear this. So most of the things that happen in our church settings and everything, and we cry and everything, it's to prepare us a lot of times to hear what God really wants us to do. 
So Isaiah, I'm so glad that this experience didn't end before this particular verse. Where Isaiah then says to us, Also I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Who shall I send? And look at what God says. What God said was also non-specific. Here is Isaiah. He had just experienced something powerful. According, we don't read anywhere in this scripture that somebody else experienced this with him. This was a revelation, an experience, a visitation for Isaiah as far as we can see. Right? There's no one else there. But can you imagine God saying, when there's no one else there, when you're the only one who has experienced this, and God says, who shall I send? He has cleansed you and everything, and he still sends this uh, you know, general call. Who shall I send who will go for us? My goodness, that's amazing. How can God say, why didn't God say, okay, now that I have cleansed you, will you go? He still expects you to make a choice to serve him. And that's a tough thing. Amen. What was Isaiah's response? Well, before we get to that. So in addition to everything else, he heard the voice of the Lord and understood what it said. In addition to everything else that was going on. In addition to all the stuff that goes on in the church. Can we really distill the essence of the experience? Of the Sunday morning experience? Of the family experience uh, that we have in our churches? Can we really distill that and end up with the thing that God really wants us to get? How God wants us to respond? What God wants us to do? In addition to everything else. There is so much going on in our lives. That it is very, very difficult, brethren, to really hear what God wants us to do. There is so much. And I, and, and I, I pray a lot for my children because they are growing up in this, in this, uh, in this life of multitasking, you know. And, and you know, the, the life that we are living these days, is, it, it's very difficult for you to end up doing the one thing that God wants you to do that will draw every other thing that you wish to do along with it. What we try to do instead is we try to do this, we try to do that, we try to do this, we try to do that. Well, let me give myself as an example, okay? Because that's the example I know the best. In my spare time, I like writing music. Like playing on my keyboard, writing music, recording music. Then I also like writing. And I also believe that God has called me to preach and to teach. And uh, I also love the law. I have a little bit of legal training. Sometimes I, 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 you know, I say, well, why don't I, I really need to complete my, my law degree because, I, you know, and, and it would be wonderful for me to offer my services pro bono, you know, to people who can't get a good lawyer because I'm under the uh, uh, misapprehension that I will be a good lawyer. You know? And there's so many other things that I like doing. So many other things that I like doing. I used to play soccer when I was a, a young man. And even though time has clearly taken its toll, I still see myself sometimes as a soccer player. And then I go on the internet, on my computer, and I see all the possibilities that are there. The things that I can do, I can be a consultant for that, I can be that. I, and, and you know, because of the resources that are available to us, we can do it relatively well. But what is it that God wants me to do? And, and, and I'm not even talking about the things that happen on Sunday morning when I come to a service and someone preaches and, and uh, whether I hear, uh, you know, because possibilities always open up, a prophetic word comes, which takes you in another direction. And so, there is so much to do. There is so much that you can do. But Isaiah heard, in addition to all these things, he heard the thing that God really wanted him to do. Can you? It's difficult. I really don't have an answer about what exactly you should do. But I pray that you would ask God to enable you to really hear what he wants you to hear. And there are some things that you are never going to do. 
that you are able to do right now. There are some things that you are gifted to do that you will never do in your life. There will always be things that you are looking forward to doing and so on. They will just be there as a distraction. Now, which ones are the distractions? You know, that's tough. But I pray that you would know. All right, let's go through this quickly. So it's not just a matter of hearing, but hearing clearly. He didn't just hear the voice of the Lord. He heard what the voice of the Lord said. Romans ten seventeen. So then faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. I, 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 unfortunately, uh, we will just have to have faith in us in order for us to hear. We'll have to actually you know, take the word of God in and believe God. You, you, without believing God, you can't hear. can't hear him. You actually have to believe that he is the one who is speaking in the first place. And if you don't know that he is the one who is speaking, how can you believe him? Amen? Alright, are we together? You actually have to believe that you are a Christian. That you are a child of God. That God speaks. And that at a particular time, it's him speaking. When you believe that, when you have the faith to know that it is God who is speaking then you will be able to hear what he is saying. You will listen when you believe that it is him speaking. Now, if you can't even get there to the point where you have faith that it is God speaking, how can you believe what he says? You can't pay attention to what he says if you don't believe that he is God and he has to be listened to. My goodness, I mean, this is a, this is a difficult one. How do we deal with that? It's a difficult one. You have to believe that he is God. That he is the God who is speaking to you through your dreams. That he is the God who is speaking to you through your pastor. That he is the God who is speaking to you through his word. That's a tough one. For if the trumpet give an uncertain sound, who shall prepare themselves to the battle? I really believe that God speaks clearly. We are the ones who don't hear clearly. But God speaks clearly. I really don't believe that God sends out signals which are unclear. We can't hear through the clutter of our lives. There are, it may be, so many voices in the world and none without signification. So you have to be able to distinguish the voice of God. Now, if we can't even resolve the elementary things about whether is this really God speaking or is this really, does God really speak? Okay? Does God really speak? How then can we go on to the next stage of distinguishing whether among these many voices it is God who is actually speaking? See, if you can't resolve that one thing, does God speak? Do you believe God speaks? Okay, I'm asking you this morning. Do you believe God speaks? Yeah. If you believe that God speaks, then you can go to the next step. Which is of all these voices, which one is the voice of God? Now look at where the church is a lot of times. The church is arguing about whether God speaks or not. Look at how far we are from hearing what God is saying. Does he speak? I still have people who come to me. No matter how many times I share with them some experience, some extraordinary experiences of God speaking to me in a very clear way. I still get people coming asking at our church, does God speak through dreams? Is this prophecy really real? Really? You know, how does it, does he really speak? You know, and people are still, this is how far we are from How can we hear the call of the cause? We can't. So what was Isaiah's response? Then said I, this is Isaiah. Here I am. You see that arrow is a little smaller, the second one. The first one is thick. The second one is a little thinner. When we, say, when, when we realize that it is us who God is calling, a lot of times we, we see ourselves in a very big way. Then said I, then he says, here I am. He comes into the presence of God. And you feel a little bit smaller when you come into the presence of God. And it's, it's wonderful. It's actually God, God makes sure that we feel smaller because he wants us to create room for something that you'll see in a second. When, 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 by the time we say, send me, we are trembling. We're not sure anymore. There are three steps here. You know, you say, then said I, here I am. You're getting smaller. You're shrinking. And when you, when you say, send me, you're not sure. You're like, why am I saying this? What's going on with me? This is what God wants to, us to make room for. Goodness and mercy. 
which will follow us all the days of our life. And this is, these are the other things that God wants us to make room for. By the time we say, send me, there is an army around us. But you know, the most important thing is the presence of God himself in everything. Amen. That's the most important thing. So Isaiah responded to the challenge that God set before him. The elders of Judah responded to the Cyrus challenge. David responded to Goliath's challenge because he was confident that he would be surrounded by the presence of God. Alright, the Shekinah challenge. Uh, we'll be done in five minutes with this session. Ezra 10.4 This man called Shekaniah. It's in the same book uh, where we find the Cyrus challenge. Ezra is very disturbed. The reason why Ezra is disturbed is because the children of Israel have been uh, mixing and marrying strange women and stuff like that. And by the way, this has got nothing to do, this was not a statement against cross uh, multi-ethnic, uh, inter-ethnic marriages. This was not it. No, this has something to do with the, these people worshipping God, gods which were not the God. So the children of Israel in captivity had started intermarrying and they had abandoned their God. And Ezra is very disturbed by this. And Ezra starts crying and, you know, confessing the sins of Israel to God. And when he does that, the people actually respond. Says in verse 1, Now when Ezra had prayed, and when he had confessed, weeping and casting himself down before the house of God, they assembled unto him out of Israel a very great congregation of men and women and children, for the people wept very sore. When they assembled unto him, guess what Ezra continued doing? Continued crying. <laughs> okay? And this is what I saw when I was getting ready for this conference. What I saw are the multitudes that have gathered in the churches. Multitudes. Multitudes. And what is needed now is for those people who have inspired these multitudes to assemble, to now hear the words of Shekinah. The reason why sometimes churches get to a thousand and then they start dwindling to nothing is because we don't go to the next step. Okay? And the next step is what Shekaniah said. When Shekaniah observed Ezra in contrition over the sins of Israel, Ezra, you know, being overwhelmed by conviction, and, and then observed that the people had responded, he says, look here now, arise! Because the people have gathered. They have come. They have actually responded to you. They are here. Now arise. This matter belongs unto you. Now give direction to the people. What are the people supposed to do? This matter belongs to you. This is your responsibility. You have actually caused the people to come. Now arise. Stop crying and, you know, you know get up and give direction to the people. Because this matter belongs to you. Amen. Arise. Show that you are actually going to do something by your posture. For this matter, this one, I mean, don't try to pass it on to somebody else. You are the one who has started this. It's nobody else's responsibility. You can't call the people to war and when they gather, they say, okay, what shall we do? You know, do, we, do you think we should fight? Can't do that. Amen. The people have come out to war. You are the one who said they should come out to war. Right? Now arise because this is your matter. You are the one who started this. We'll talk about this in the last session. About finishing. You are the one who inspired... You are the one who has caused these people to say, oh, you know, okay, we are, we are here and we are as repentant as you are. Now what's next? Amen. This matter belongs to you. This cause has your name written on it. It's nobody else's. You can't run away from the responsibility of this cause. 
and there are people who will help you. There are helpers. And we also will be with you. We are there. We are helpers. Rise up and do what God wants you to do. Okay, and I'll ask you to read this one. Well, you know, you already know it is the Mordecai challenge. I'll just mention it quickly so that we can go to break. The Mordecai challenge, Esther 4.14. You know what happened with Esther. She's now married. She's now the queen. Uh, She's a a Hebrew, a Jew in the palace. She has the good fortune of, of being in the palace as the queen when they are in exile. And then, all of a sudden, there's a threat against the Jews. And Mordecai, her relative, says to her, Look here, can you intercede on our behalf with King Ahasuerus? Uh, because, you know, uh, there's, there's a th- threat of genocide right here. Can you do that, please? He says, no, 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 no. I can't do that because you know what the law in, this, in Persia is, you know. You can't just go and see the, the king, you know, without him, you know, holding out the golden scepter to you. Because if you do that, you know, if he, you know, if he, if, if he doesn't hold out the golden scepter to you, then you're supposed to be killed. Now, this is, this is amazing. Here is this woman. This king has such, so many people to choose from. Remember what had happened. His wife had insulted him, and so now he, he wanted to take another, another wife. So, he, you know, they, they were, he sent out such parties in all his kingdom and said, you know, I want one who will really please me. And among the, the people of the captivity, among the Persians themselves, they, they found one, and that was Esther. Can you imagine just how much this king loved Esther? She was the apple of his eye. Why would this king, if the queen walked in, why would he not hold out the golden scepter? We always have excuses. Why would this king say, I am not going to hold out the golden scepter to Esther? Obviously, the moment she, before she even enters the room, if she's somewhere just behind the wall there, his heart would start fluttering. This was the, I mean, she was a, she was a, a good looking woman. And she was the one that he had chosen. So Mordecai says, look, <laughs> I think the, the true reason here, I, I, I don't know what your motives are, but if you think you're going to get away with it, that everyone, if everyone gets killed, that you are going to get away with it, you are mistaken. If there is a genocide, it will affect you too. Then he says something else. And who knoweth whether thou art come to the kingdom for such a time as this? Do you understand the purpose of your placement? Do you understand why you are here? Do you understand it? You understand why God has placed you here at this particular time? Is there not a cause? Why has He placed you in the life of the person to whom you are married? I believe there's a kingdom purpose even to that. Why has He placed you in the church where you are at? I believe there's a kingdom purpose for that. Why is it that he has placed you in Mossville? Why has he placed you at your company? Why has he placed you in the United States? Why are you here? Do you really understand your purpose? If you do, then you will rise up to the call of leadership in this time.